Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. My name's Lucas Stuber, joined as always by Rachel Madel. How are you? I'm doing so good, how are you? Good, I'm, uh, I'm hiding in a closet because the acoustics in my house are not great. And by Chris Begay, also in a closet, how are you? No, I'm fantastic. Well, so today we're gonna talk about iconicity. What's critical about it is that it's, it's a fundamental underlying piece of what we're doing in AAC that we talk a lot a lot less about than we do about language systems and grid sizes and everything else, but it's, it underpins everything else. Um, Chris, did you have thoughts on that? Quick, don't turn off the podcast when you hear that word iconicity. We're going to try and break it down for you. So iconicity, the way I think of it is, here's a picture. How well does that picture do representing what I was trying to represent? I just saw a tweet by someone who made a World Cup board with all these icons on it, and it is in Croatian, right? So the, the text over each of the picture symbols is in a language that I don't speak. And so I'm looking at these pictures and I'm thinking, do I know what this word is? You know, what, what is this thing trying to make? And it looks like it's board maker symbol-ish, you know? There's a, there's a clear one here where there's a soccer ball going into a goal. Well, that's pretty simple. I know that is going to be goal. But then there's another one here where it's just like people with their arms up shaking their, their, their hands in the air. And it's got me thinking, does that mean cheer, hooray? Like, I don't know what that picture means. And so that's what I think iconicity means is how well does a picture represent what it's supposed to represent? And this is, this is relevant, I think, to everyone's practice because all of the different systems that we use in AAC have different sort of approaches to this and different levels of iconicity, whether that's PCS symbols or symbol sticks or lesson picks or smarty symbols or whatever it happens to be that's been licensed or created for that specific AAC system. And it has real uh, implications uh, for the users, you know, especially as we're finding through research for users with autism, right? Rachel, this is an area that you work with a lot. Yeah, absolutely, and I was so excited. So I have been following who we did the interview with, Callum Hartley, and he is doing research on iconicity and specific to children with autism. And I found his research because I have had a lot of roadblocks when it comes to the children that I work with who have autism understanding uh, photos and pictures. Um, and so I was really fascinated by his research. And of course, it was thrilled to see that he would come on the show and talk with us. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear the interview. It was a really fantastic conversation that uh, he talks about his research and how children with autism, you know, are, are understanding symbols a little bit differently um, than, than maybe some of our other clients and really interested in how that impacts our AAC implementation, obviously. So let's talk, I guess, a little bit briefly about the just sort of scales of iconicity, um, just in terms of how iconic things are, right? So the most literal sort of non-abstract representation of something would actually be a photograph, right? Relative to the actual thing itself. So if you have a, you have a dog, right? You take a picture of that student's dog, then they have a photo of the dog in the device and they know what that means, right? I mean, that's, that's something that I think is probably the most concrete, understandable icon. Maybe if that's the word you're trying to represent, is it canine? Is it bark? Is it furry? What word are you really trying to have the person understand? You know, that I think is uh, kind of the heart of the issue. Right, absolutely. Well, and that's that's one advantage, right, of things that are maybe less iconic. So if we were to go up a couple levels, maybe to a, a line drawing with color or just a line drawing, 
or eventually to the ultimate sort of level of abstraction visually, which would be letters to, you know, to form language, um, that can apply, like, you know, the photograph of a dog refers to that dog specifically, but a line drawing of a resemblance of a dog could be the, the total genus of dogs, or it could be canine, right, or a variety of other things. So it allows us to represent more things the more abstract we get, but we have to balance that against, you know, the sort of literal interpretation of the world that some of our clients might experience. So let's talk about some of the ways that that impacts practice. Rachel, you, you made some comments about that. What are the ways that you would modify then the icons if you're, if you're hitting a roadblock with a student with autism? You hit the nail on the head, Lucas, when you hit a roadblock. So I always start with icons because I always want to assume that a child can pick them up and understand them. Um, but what I find sometimes is when children aren't being as consistent with their device or it just feels like they're, it's not clicking, I will try to use a photograph instead of the icon and see if that helps. Um, a lot of times, you know, that switch is enough for it to click for a child, especially a child with autism. I was working with a, a client a few months ago and it just, parents felt like they're not getting it. We don't know what to do. It just feels random. And they weren't navigating consistently to the different folders. And so inside the fringe word folders were fringe words and we could take photos of, you know, banana and cookie and all the things that they wanted to ask for. But when it came to navigating the folders, they had a hard time. And I realized that there was an icon on each of the folders for food, right? Uh, it's a collection of things. So it, it's easier to have an icon for food. But what I decided to do was I went on Google Images and I pulled an image of a variety of different kinds of food. So I tried to find the best photograph versions of food and toys and places. And I changed the symbols to photographs on the device and almost instantaneously, this child was able to then navigate, which was interesting and which told me that it was the icon that they weren't understanding. Now, with that being said, I think sometimes we just need to give it more time, right? I think eventually if we modeled enough, the child would either learn the icon or they would understand the motor plan. This is where all my food is. Doesn't mean they necessarily have to look at the symbol, but I do think that for kids who are having a hard time, it's something that you can try to make it easier for them. Yeah, Rachel, I have a quick follow-up question for you. When you said you changed the icons, did you, do you mean, you mean, you changed the icon for the category of food or did yes. you change all of the icons for each individual food? This is a banana. This is an apple. This is a, so we, we had started with photographs, um, in the folders. So for the food folder, there were photographs in there for a lot of the different foods. Cause mom was like, well, I don't know what kind of cookie he wants. And mom was very specific about wanting the different kinds of food. So she was taking photographs of everything. Um, so he was having success with the photographs. Um, but, but yes, I changed the icon of the food folder, um, to just a, a Google image photograph of food. Um, and it, it helps exponentially, um, with this specific case. Maybe using the, the Google images is a way of teaching what the symbol means, you know, and those could work, um, in simpatico together, you know, right. So use this to teach that. That's a really good point. It can be a fallback, right? So if we need to go to pictures or even like a visual scene display, like that can really give some concrete meaning to this device for, for a lot of kids. But it's restrictive, right? Because then that limits the context in which it's, it's usable. Like if you have a bunch of visual scenes around the house, then you're not going to be able to use that as effectively when you go out to Costco, right? 
However, we don't want to get stuck there, I guess. Like we want to keep on reinforcing the meaning of that and trying to graduate back to things that are a little bit more abstract because that's ultimately how we get to literacy, which is mm -hmm. the end goal, right? We want people to be understanding the, you know, the symbols that, um, you know, formulate language. And that's always the caveat for me, you know, and, and this is what I told the family. I said, we're going to change it for now. First and foremost, I want them to have success with their device because especially in the initial, initial stages of AAC, you need that buy-in. Right. So I need my client to be like, yes, this is easy. I'm getting what I want. I can navigate it. Um, but I think you're exactly right, Lucas. We need to remember to teach those, those things. We can't just take photographs of every word we would want a child to use on a device. Um, you know, and especially as, as, words become more abstract, it's, we, we rely on those icons. How do we photograph more, for example? It's, it's really challenging. So we need to teach that skill. Um, and that's something that actually, when I work with ABA teams, we do run programming on how to teach icons. Um, and we do things like icon sorting, you know, having all different kinds of cookies and we put them all in one place. Um, but it has the icon on that sorting page. Um, and then eventually understanding that, you know, I match this photograph of an Oreo with the icon for cookie because they're the same thing. So, um, but it's something that I'm really cognizant of when I'm working with, with a family and a team is that I want to keep teaching that. We don't have enough space on these devices without multiple levels of navigation to get to, to all of those photographs of all of the potential snacks and foods and toys and all the things that they could want. Well, and, and you know, one, one sort of underlying theme to all of this, uh, you know, with the fact that you start with icons and then fall back if you need to is, is this idea of the presumption of competence, right? And one thing I thought was really interesting with, uh, with Caleb's research, which we'll talk about a little bit, is the fact that symbolic knowledge does not seem to be correlated at all with measures of nonverbal IQ. That this is much more predicted by by measures of language knowledge, right? Meaning that we can make inferences that way. Like, so if there's if we have a child with a strong grasp of symbolic meaning, then that probably translates just about one to one to to access the language. With ASD, this particularly seems to to be the case. Great point. It's so hard for these kids who come to us for AAC, right? Because communication is so challenging. Any assessment is always going to have to be taken with a grain of salt. I mean, I think any assessment generally, just because it's one glimpse of a child, um, but especially our AAC kids, because it's just really challenging when there's a lack of understanding of what they even know. A lot of the kids that I work with, it's really hard to just judge their receptive language because they can't um, you can't, they can't show me everything, right? If it's, if it's a noun, sure, it's easier, but it, the more abstract it becomes, the harder it is, right? They can't answer questions. They can't do a lot of the things that are, are judges for receptive language. And what's more abstract, Rachel, than core vocabulary? You know, you ask someone to show me a picture of put, you know, draw me a picture of put. Well, what, what do you draw? You know, should draw me yeah. a picture of get, you know, what do you draw? And, uh, so often we fool ourselves because there's like that, just like I said, with the Croatian uh, little icons that I was looking at, I couldn't, don't speak Croatian. I don't read Croatian. I don't know what that icon means. Just like most kids who are using AAC devices are not yet literate. They're not reading. But we, because the adults are with them, we assume, well, you should know what that means put. You should know what that means get. I often think maybe the best icon would be, imagine taking... Um, a hundred, take, go into a kindergarten classroom or maybe five kindergarten classrooms and ask them to write, draw me a picture of put. 
and, and have them all draw it and then find, you know, then use that as the icon or somehow get some sort of a simulation of all of those. It's like, look, they all drew this because put, let's put that on the communication symbol because then that would match the uh, developmental age, you know? That's a good yeah. idea. Yeah, I wonder if the people who are, who are coming up with these symbols have done their, their research, right? Their preschool research. <laughs> We, I don't think we should just have a little team of preschool artists, actually. That, that would be, well, we definitely have Batman for everything. <laughs> you know what's interesting, actually, that I thought of, Chris, as you were just saying that, is what I've done before to impress upon teams how hard it is to adopt a system, an AAC system, is I will take the labels off. So it's only icons. Right. And it's like, now navigate it. Now figure out everything, you know, because we take for granted the fact that we're literate and we can read. Um, you know, just like you said, Chris, it says put under it. So we're like, oh, put. Yeah, this makes sense. Uh, take all those labels off and all of those words, and it's a lot more challenging. And I think it's a good practice for us to try to get into the shoes of our learners and realize that this is this is challenging. Um, and if, if we didn't read, you know, it would be a lot harder to decipher what those icons mean. I get nervous sometimes that people choose their systems. And I've definitely heard parents and teachers say, well, part of the consideration was the symbols that we liked better. Like you liked better? Like, what do you mean you liked it? Like, because uh, you, you looked at it and it made more sense to you. But maybe, I mean, maybe there's something to that. But again, you take those words off and you don't know what they are. That'd be a better way to assess what symbol set makes most sense to you. I think another part of that iconicity piece is that, again, here's another big word, polysemy? Polysemy, yes. Polysemy, that's it. Thanks, Lucas. The idea that the icon could have more than one meaning. So mean if, you're, if it's a lion, it could mean yellow. It could mean terror. It could mean hungry. You know, If it was an elephant, it could be, it means large. It could mean uh, big, huge, yep. slower. If it was Dumbo, it could be flying elephants. I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like an, a picture of an, an elephant can mean more than just one thing. Yeah, and in fact, it does. There's, I'm, I try to remember the name of the icon system, but it's used for big, um, or perhaps it's bigger. That, yeah, that's, uh, I, I mean, and it's a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, that provides a lot more potential meaning and versatility within the system, right, by allowing for polysemy. But it also is a little bit more complicated in terms of, you know, iconic meaning. Um, there, that, that's one of a number of approaches, I think, that people have taken to embed more meaning into systems with the inherent restrictions that we have in terms of like grid size and those things. Another one, um, Chris, that I know you mentioned when we were talking about a different topic is, uh, you know, having, and maybe you can explain this better, but having a sequence of icons uh, to construct meaning instead of a single one. If you have an abstract word like open or put or work or something like that, if you had multiple images, you could maybe better have a chance of guessing what that word was. So if I had a, a picture of an open door and a picture of an open jar and a picture of my arms wide open, those three put together would be better than just any one of those to being able to guess, well, it's not door because there's a picture of a jar there and it's not jar because there's a picture of a door there. Is it hug because Chris's arms are out? No, that doesn't fit with it. But they're all, oh, all three of those are open. It's the word we're going for is open. So if you had some sort of, uh, multiple icons to represent a word, you might better be able to represent that word, which I think uh, some systems are built that way. Specifically, uh, I think word, Words for Life is built that way. The uh, MinSpeak is, uh, the Unity system is built that way. And I think Speak for Yourself is based on that. 
Yep. Well, and then another approach I've seen a few people take is to have animated icons, right? To have a little bit more of that sort of verb sense to it, you know? And I, I don't know about that. I, I guess we don't really have research yet. In my experience, when I've tried that with certain students, especially on the spectrum, it's been very distracting. But and it's, it's an intriguing idea. Well, you know what? It's because you have all these symbols together, right? So if you're looking at just one uh, symbol and it's a little ball going in and out and in and out, you could have it be in and out, you know? Um, but of course, then that's two. But it, it now picture an entire grid with all these moving symbols, you know? Yeah, it's like watching a bunch of cartoons at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe a little more difficult. <laughs> well, and what's interesting, and I, I'm not exactly sure the name of this guy who's doing research in Boston, but what they were doing with kids with autism was doing video modeling of actions and then doing a screen grab from the video. So teaching, you know, jump, for example, having the child jump taking a video of it and then pulling that screenshot from the, the, and using it as a still frame in the device. And we're having success with that, uh, which I thought was really interesting just because I, I think you're right. I think the, the dynamic images, like we have, uh, our learners often have enough challenges attending and, you know, staying focused and not getting distracted. And I think uh, we don't need to add you know, moving images, like I can just imagine all of my kids, like little heads, like bobbing all around, like, you know, super distracted. So, um, but it's really interesting just to kind of think about, because I think that, you know, as technology grows, we have a lot of opportunities to figure out what ways might work better, especially for specific kinds of learners. So what do you think our takeaways are? Well, I think one of them is how can we, how can we teach kids who are having a hard time with iconicity? What strategies or you know, ideas can we share with teachers and SLPs to start working on this if the child is not grasping iconicity? Do you guys have anything, any ideas? Well, my first thought is to make sure that you're not imposing that on them, meaning um, I wouldn't want to say, geez, the kid's having a hard time with iconicity because they don't understand what the word put is or they don't understand what the word sit is or this abstract symbol. I think what I would do is I'd want to be teaching what that icon is. And I want to make sure that I've taught it to the point where they've proven to me that they can't learn it. And then I would go back and see, well, maybe I would switch the icon at that point. But first, I would be really wanting to be teaching what the icon means. And so to, to put it to your example of the screen grab of the jump, I think immediately I'd be like, okay, let's watch these videos of kids jumping and you jump and uh, everyone in the class jump and then here's the icon for jump, you know, and or do that simultaneously. I'm showing right. you a picture of jumping and here's the icon for jump so that you're teaching what that icon means. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's, the, that's one of my big takeaways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think another one is, Rachel, you, you already described it, but, but not, I guess, I, I, like, I love what you just said, Chris, about teaching it until they sort of prove that they're not going to learn it in the manner that it's being presented, right? So obviously, always start at the, you know, the highest level that you think is appropriate based on all the knowledge that you have about that child. But, you know, we can also fall back to more concrete representations, especially in situations where um, motivation can be a factor. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, if, 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 if you're in building that initial buy in around the device, the last thing you want is for it sort of not to be understood to the level of frustration and then have the student just not want to engage with it anymore. Well, and something that I do speaking to motivation, Lucas, is once we kind of start getting that buy in and the child's using the device, um, I'll start integrating symbols for their highly preferred items. Right. So if they love cookies, like that's one of the first ones I switch over um, to see like, okay, I know they probably know where it is because they've had so much exposure with it. 
um, can we switch this to an icon? And nine times out of 10, we can, you know, probably because they, they, they know where the motor plan for it. And they know, like, I know where a cookie is. You could change it to pretty much anything and I'll still know where a cookie is. Um, so I think, but I think that's important is taking into consideration the motivation. Um, and for highly motivating words, I think is a good place to, to start. Yeah, perfect. And as you say, exactly, once they've already sort of learned the location and that, I mean, if you if you change that, they're going to keep on accessing it in the same manner. And that's a good way to scaffold some of the other um, learning. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other piece is uh, just just sort of best practices for leading into literacy. Um, I just I just want to say this, even though we haven't really hit on it too much, but uh, but do please keep that text paired with the icon on the device. Thank you very much, and uh, always have that there. It's just just having that sort of passive exposure to the letters that represent the words is really important. And then over time, we can gradually sort of fade away even the size of the icons and those sorts of things and start focusing more on the letters. I think the other one other big takeaway would be looking at the assessment piece and when you're considering what communication system you put in place in general, don't let the symbols be the thing that is the, the deciding factor whether you do or do not use a, uh, that particular system uh, because of this whole conversation we're having about iconacy and about the complexity around it. There's a lot of factors that go into what makes an icon uh, something that people understand. And so I would hate for someone to lose out on a system because you thought that the symbols were too complex or not complex enough, you know? Right. Sure. All of this stuff is, I mean, everything that we're talking about here is a construct of our own clinical interventions. Right. And so I don't know if that, if that makes sense, but I mean, all systems are abstract to one level or another. They're all going to have different challenges. And I agree with you that it should be a consideration, but there's a lot of other things to think about too. But I'm glad that we had this conversation because this is um, it's something that's not really talked about. But to, you know, to start this conversation and have people be more aware of it, I think is great, not only for the people that we serve, but also in order to get clinical feedback back to the people that are building these icon systems so that they can be improved. Because I think that often people will have opinions but not really comment about it. Um, so all that being said, we do want to save a little bit of time to actually share uh, Caleb's interview with you. So without... Uh, Further ado, uh, let me introduce Dr. Hartley in his interview about iconicity. Well, welcome back once again to Talking with Tech. As always, this is Lucas Stuber in uh, not so sunny Portland, Oregon, um, as opposed to uh, Rachel Madel, who's joining us from Los Angeles. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you guys doing? Um, I am thrilled today to be joined by Callum Hartley. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, Callum, if you could start us off, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Okay, so I am a lecturer in psychology at Lancaster University in the UK. Um, I'm predominantly, the research that I, I conduct uh, focuses on communication and social cognition in children with ASD. Uh, I have a particular interest in children with profound language impairments, minimally verbal children. A lot of my, my existing research to date, because uh, I'm, I'm an early career researcher, um, has investigated symbolic understanding of words, pictures, and how they re- represent objects. Um, I'm currently interested in, in word learning. Perfect. And can just for people who don't know, you know, that buzzword iconicity, can you just break that down for everybody? So um, iconicity is a, is a term that uh, refers to 
the essentially to what extent a symbol resembles the thing that it's intended to represent and in terms of, of pictures that the iconicity is uh, is a, it's termed by visual properties and it's a like a spectrum so at one end of the spectrum you have images that share no perceptual similarities to the things they're meant to represent your abstract art and your your, your kind of uh, children's scribbles for example and at the opposite end of the spectrum you have things that look exactly like the thing they're meant to represent really high resolution color photographs that's something that we think about a lot when we're working with kids using AAC because, you know, it's a visual language system. And the reason that I'm really excited to have you on and, you know, to talk to you and pick your brain is because I'm really finding that my work with kids with autism, sometimes they're just not grasping these symbols. And the more abstract they are, the harder it is for them to learn. Um, and then, you know, obviously we need that receptive component and that comprehension in order to use these words. And I'm finding that the symbol does matter. No, and, and it's great to hear that because your, your experiences in applied practice um, map on exactly to the kind of findings that we've discovered in our, in our uh, academic research. Um, in a whole range of different um, experimental contexts, we found that iconicity definitely matters in terms of scaffolding how children understand pictures actually relate to the world, um, how they understand language relates to pictures and objects, and also their ability to represent, mentally represent a picture and contextualize it in, in, in real world space. Yeah, absolutely. And we also talk about core words versus fringe words, right? And the idea that core is not just nouns. So fringe is mostly nouns. And then core is obviously a little bit more abstract because it includes verbs and adjectives and prepositions. And those are really hard to encapsulate in an icon, right? Yes. Um, it's really easy for Apple. It looks like an Apple, you know, it is an Apple, but for something like abstract, yeah, right. But draw draw a picture of love. This is where it gets challenging. Exactly. It is a real challenge. Yeah, representing verbs is is tough, it, mainly because they involve dynamic action or something that doesn't tangibly, visibly exist, right? But that being said, I suspect there probably are ways of using iconicity to scaffold children's understanding of those kind of concepts in a way that is personally meaningful to them. And I wonder if uh, use of photographs, particularly of the child, in, in engaging in these kinds of things might actually help. I, I've seen that done a number of ways, but I, and it, the problem that I have is that there's there's no one solution that I don't have a concern with, I guess. Mm. So using a photograph of the child engaged in an activity is very context dependent yeah, of course. and may not generalize as well for them into like say they're, or a picture of them walking through the park may not translate to a picture of them walking Costco. And then I, there are some manufacturers that are moving more towards gifts, but the, you know, sort of moving image uh, piece, um, which I've also found can be distracting. Mm. So not to put you on the spot, but what's what's the solution? What do we do? <laughs> no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think there is a one size fits all solution. Um, and I think it would probably be a case of transitional um, work. So it may well be the case that children who have particularly profound language difficulties, their root to figuring out how visual symbols, pictures relate to the world is only through perceptual similarity, is only through a high degree of iconicity. And it may be that you do need to start with those context-specific um, images and then transition potentially to using more generic images that serve. Because, of course, you're right, absolutely. Some The beauty of a photograph is, of course, it can represent a very specific moment in time. It's contextualized. Um, but that's not what pictures all are, are all about. You know, they're decontextualized for the most part. They serve a general referencing function. They represent categories of things. 
but it may be that perhaps that you need that initial context in order for the child to figure out how this thing that they're looking at actually maps onto reality. You know, a lot of times when I am working with a child who is using a device and they're not using it consistently, um, what I'll often do is I'll try to swap a photograph. So I always kind of start with icons because, you know, that's ideal, right? I always tell parents, like, we don't need every variety of cookie on this device if we can just have an icon for one cookie. Um, you know, because there's a, the, the issue with AAC is we don't have the real estate. It's very uh, laborious to have tons of folders with tons of vocabulary that children have to, you know, scroll through and find. I, I don't love having, you know, tons and tons and tons of different photos of the same thing. That's why the icon is so useful. But I think the problem is when a child's not grasping that concept, I'll, I'll try for the photograph. And I've worked with kids and the moment you switch, um, like they're not, uh, say I'm working with food and toys, for example, and those are very, um, you know, icon based, right? It's not just like, what toy do you choose for the, the photo of a toy? Um, so what I'll do is I'll go and I'll just Google image something that has a bunch of toys. Um, but it's a photograph. It's not a picture. And I've had kids literally go from so inconsistent to a hundred percent accuracy, which shows me that they really understand when they see the photo of something, but they're not understanding the actual picture. Um, so I think you're exactly right. We need to use that information. Um, but also, you know, kind of going off of what Lucas said, if we don't want to get stuck there, right? Like we need to keep teaching um, and scaffolding and transitioning kids to eventually understanding icons. But um, I think from, from a short-term comprehension perspective, it's really, really useful to uh, utilize photographs. Well, it makes sense from a um, child development point of view. Um, and we, I mean, we know from, from studies of early typical development that um, you know, children who are kind of 18 to, to 24 months, they are far better at understanding how, uh, how iconic color photos relate to the world than less iconic representations, um, whether that be in, in studies that involve um, picture books, for example, teaching them sequence of actions that they have to imitate, or being able to show them a picture of where a toy is hidden in a room and then them going off to, to find it. So we know that iconicity matters in early typical development, and then gradually it becomes less important as, as um, children's pictorial symbol system becomes less fragile. Now, if we think about the, the, the kind of building blocks of pictorial development in, in, in typical children, the foundations are, uh, are, often, are impaired, uh, qualitatively atypical often in, in ASD. Um, so it, it makes complete sense that for a longer period of time, they would be increasing a reliance on photographs and that a greater degree of perceptual similarity. Besides kind of utilizing photos, are there any, um, you know, strategies that you think would be useful or how do we transition a child who is not grasping those icons? Um, what's kind of a systematic way to start um, introducing? Are there some icons that are easier than others or do you have any, any hacks? Uh, that's a good question. And again, this is my limitation being a, an academic psychologist as opposed to a, a practitioner like yourself. No, <laughs> quite honest. Uh, my, my suspicion is that photographs are the, are the way to go, but they still have the, their limitations. 
and, and like Lucas was pointing out, I think it's, it's useful that it, ch ch a child might have that eureka moment and figure out, oh, I've been working with I, uh, you know abstract icons for a while. Oh, I've seen a photo. I've, I've worked this out. But really getting them to understand how it applies to not just their specific context, but more generally, there are strategies for that kind of thing, I suspect, particularly teaching using multiple exemplars. That's one thing I remember from grad school. It might be the only thing I was ever taught about autism in grad school, uh, use multiple representations of words. <laughs> yes. Hey, where's, where's your professors? Oh my gosh. What, <laughs> I could not agree more. Well, and, and, and I think using it. So, so one comment that I made a, a statement about one benefit of, of the abstract symbols being say, uh, you know, an abstract picture of a dog could stand in for all genus of dogs rather than a photo of a family dog, which may be harder to generalize. I guess if we start with the photographs, right, as, as Rachel articulated, that she does often what's the next step or how do we get here from there my perspective is that um as children's communication and language improves so we know that pictorial understanding in in both typical development and and there's emerging evidence in asd that their understanding of how pictures relate to the world is tied into their understanding of, of verbal symbols in typical development we understand children um usually understand what a verbal symbol means before they figure out a visual representation, how that actually relates to the world. So language is the, is the most privileged symbol system there is, right? And, and parents and caregivers prioritize making sure children understand what these, these words mean. And if you think about all the common pictures that children tend to see early in development, they're all representative of words that, that are already in children's vocabularies for the most part. And the studies out there that, that demonstrate that whilst that picture system is fragile for the child, they are absolutely reliant on using verbal scaffolding to figure out what the meaning of the picture actually is. Do you think the, the I guess the more distinguishable the icon, the easier it is to sort of build that symbolic knowledge? Well, shape is absolutely essential, um, both in terms of children's early uh, lexical development and also how they figure out pictures, right? So um, children's early vocabulary, those the kinds of words that they're learning are so well organized by shape that it actually attunes their attention to shape. And by uh, once they've acquired about, uh, well, the estimates are between a 50 and 150 count nouns in the vocabulary, that is the thing they pay attention to when they're, they're learning new words and they extend labels based on that. And, and once they refigure out that the shape of something determines what it is and therefore the name it should receive, they also apply that logic to pictures. It was yeah. to show you, you know, um, how much this visual stimulus feeds our perception, um, uh, you know, not only of the world, but, but of language. Like, I mean, I know a lot of kids, for example, that cannot read McDonald's to save their life, but boy, will they recognize those arches. Yes. So that, that's presumably a kind of reinforced relationship, right? They see the sign and they get something good. <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of operant conditioning going on there. I think, I think so. <laughs> this is a topic that, that's, that's very interesting to me. And, um, and it's a topic that's of, of great interest, obviously, to the augmented communication community, because this is one of the big questions, right? Is the ultimate goal of any of the students that we're working with is to get them to the point of literacy, right? To be able to, to read and to write, because that opens up a whole world of consumption and production that they wouldn't otherwise have. But that ability is predicated on so many different levels of symbolic knowledge. What's remarkable to me is that I'll have parents tell me, well, my child has no symbolic knowledge, right? But if they have any receptive language capability whatsoever, that implies to me that they do absolutely have symbolic knowledge. Um, you know, it may not be, it, it, it may not have developed typically in the form that we would sort of expect, mm -hmm. but the foundation is also there. 
Um, am I am I off base? No, no, no. I, I think you're absolutely spot on. I mean, the purpose of of symbolic communication is is the transmission of referential intent, exactly how we, as you are describing, um, both in terms of creating a picture, right? I mean, that's why iconist is important because the closer it looks like something it's meant to represent, the easier it is to to figure that out and draw an inference from the vision of the vis- visual properties of the thing to whatever object or concept right and the same is same is true with language we, we put the sounds together with the idea of transmitting what's in our head uh, uh referential meaning you're absolutely spot on and, and so and you had made reference to the concept of auditory iconicity uh you know before we started recording what did you mean by that so um there's uh an emerging body of literature um that indicates that natural language does have auditory iconicity so um in in studies of artificial language um and we we um present kind of pseudo words words aren't real but they have particular sounds and we ask participants to just choose which of two things do they do they map onto and there are reliable systematic preferences for a particular sounding word like like laurel and heather right is that where we're going with this so for example like uh gloop what would you imagine if i say gloop what do you what kind of shape do you think of i picture that nickelodeon stuff that they drop on people uh in the 80s Something round, something amorphous, something with uh, kind of soft edges, right? And then something like um, blot, blot, I know blot's an actual word, but imagine it isn't jot. What kind of a shape would you think there? It feels sharper to me. Exactly, right? And, and that's the kind of preference um, that is reliable, always comes out in, in, in these kinds of experiments, that there are certain sounds that, um, that, that could these kind of conceptual perceptions over kind of sharp things, round things, and they, those sounds reliably map onto how language actually works, real languages. I was just going to say, I'm just thinking about, like, you said blot or jot, and that, that I feel like it, it goes with the fact that, you know, that's a, that's a stop, that T is t- and that, like, you know, makes me think of, like, hard edges, right? And that ooh sound is more, like, flowing and... Yeah, that's so fascinating. I'm really interested by that. Yeah, and the way in which language is structured, it has a a grammar to it. And children are super sensitive to the way in which function words, uh, determiners, how how, um, nouns, how they logically fit together in a reliable way. And by being sensitive to that grammar, it actually facilitates their, their acquisition. Uh, of the language now do we do we find consistency in that research or if you know uh you know across different cultures across different like i I, for example in my own aac development we encountered certain cultures where we had to flip all the icons right to left right in order for them to be interpreted um you know in the manner that was expected uh it seems to me that there would be certain preconceptions within each within each language um but i'm i'm sort of making that up as i say it so (laughs) <laughs> I, I suspect you're probably right, um, because we know, for, again, from a super early age, um, children's perceptual tuning to the, the language that they hear, their native language, it's, it refines as early as six months, and certainly going on to 12 months, because, of course, well, the infants are, sound, are born with a, a really blank slate in terms of their ability to discriminate the sounds in which they hear. And, but as they hear more and more of their, the sounds of their native language, their auditory system tunes itself. Uh, to really be dis- to focus on discriminating the sounds that are prevalent in their language, and that's actually a characteristic that's pre- prevalent uh, in ASD, or rather, it's not prevalent. You get um, children with ASD and adults with ASD that have really, really sensitive auditory tuning, 
and are super right. sensitive to pitch and don't show that kind of preference to native sounds. How interesting. Because I, yeah, I know I've read studies of, of infants that are able to identify even their mother's accent, uh, you know, let alone their mother's voice uh, specifically. This is a great, see, this is why I was so excited about this conversation because I am at my, at my core practitioner. So I read the research and I'm, I'm a reasonable consumer of research, but um, to be able to speak with you about this, uh, you know, this, this very hot topic is, is fascinating. So, you know, what, and so one of the hot debates then is the concept of the importance of, of symbolic knowledge or, you know, iconicity relative to, to motor planning, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, and maybe we can even go as extreme as, as, as someone who was born, uh, you know, without sight, right? Um, you mm-hmm. know, maybe they, would, they wouldn't have, they would never acquire the symbolic knowledge, but certainly they could acquire language. How do we reconcile those facts? Well, I mean, the understanding that you can use something, whatever kind of symbol that is, to represent and transmit meaning about something else to other members of our culture is absolutely fundamental to communication. And if you don't have that referential insight, then what are you doing? You, at, very, at most, you're using symbols, not symbols, but as signs. So you, you're learning that... You know, let's go back to pictures. That's why I know. If you hand over a p- picture of uh, a toy or your favorite snack, then that leads to someone, someone's behavior. You know, it manipulates their behavior. They, they, they respond in a way that's favorable, and it leads to the child obtaining something that, that they want. Now, they might get that through association and repetition and scaffolding, but they don't necessarily ever have to understand the representational relation between the symbol and the outcome. So, and then based also on the comment that you made about infants having a blank slate, could we make the argument that symbolic knowledge is conditioned? Ooh, that's an interesting one because symbolic communication is, I I mean, it's born out of a whole bunch of things. Now, one theory is that infants, typically developing infants, are born with an innate desire to communicate and an innate desire to share cognitive and and social um, space with others. Yeah, and to to impact their environment. Exactly, right? And and that's why they, you know, maintain eye contact from day one. They imitate, they pull faces, they they engage in in joint tension and, and all of that good stuff. Those are quality or behaviors that are often absent or atypical. In ASD, and a prominent contemporary theory of autism is this this lack of social motivation. So their innate drive to communicate with others that might be one factor that's that's missing. That is actually a building block of symbolic representational knowledge. The desire to fundamentally right. communicate meaning to others and to understand other people who are trying to communicate with me. If you're not motivated to do so, then why acquire that knowledge? That's right. And, and symbol systems are cultural conventions, right? They differ across all the different countries in the world. You learn a language that is specific to whatever is being spoken wherever you're born, right? You know, if someone isn't born with English or French or German, right? They, they're born with a, an innate capacity to acquire language, but the nature of that language depends on where you are. and pictures, they're exactly the same. There, there are studies, cross-cultural studies out there that show the age of understanding uh, symbolic nature of pictures depends entirely on the amount of exposure that children actually re- receive to these things. So if you're not in motivated to engage in interactions and pay attention to the way in which others are behaving towards you with pictures, that they're trying to communicate this knowledge, then you're going to have difficulty 
inferring that representational intent. Well, so what I was going to say is I feel like exactly what you just said, Callum, ties in to kind of a more practical realization that that motivation is sometimes missing with autism. And, you know, in order to teach that, we need the motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, so something that that I was kind of thinking about as I asked you, you know, a practical question um, for implementation, how do we get kids to, you know, where we need them to be for iconicity? Um, I think one of the key uh, components is using their most motivated vocabulary. Yes. So, you know, if they really, I mean, a lot of the kids that I work with are just like, obsessed with snacks. So, you know, finding an icon for one of their snacks, um, you know, is something that we can start with because that motivation is there. You know, that's kind of a a fundamental piece that we need. Sure, we can use photographs on the system, but I definitely want to keep teaching iconicity. I don't want to just, just, you know, convert every symbol to a photograph, first of all, very hard. Um, but, but also I want to make sure we're teaching those skills. Maybe for short-term success, we can change a lot of the icons to photos, Mm. but for those really highly desired ones, um, you know, making sure that we, we, we keep those icons. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Using those, um, positive reinforcers, the, the kind of things that the children are super motivated to communicate with you about at the very least instrumentally. Um, is a vital starting point. Um, and it may be that by using those um, really uh, motivational items, you might start with a photo, but then you could easily turn it into a, um, a color line drawing. You know, you just draw a line, trace around the outline, color it in, and then you can transition to making it a black and white line drawing. Great idea. Child's already got this, this, this notion that this 2D image can stand for this 3D thing that I'm, I'm really like. But what you're doing is you're changing the, the, the iconicity of the image, but they're still, they, 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 they still have that foundational knowledge of how this, this image relates to the, to the world. Is there a progression? Um, you know, I know developmentally with children, there is a progression how they learn iconicity. Um, is that different for kids with autism? I don't think it is, you know. Um, I just think the, the trajectory uh, and the, the timing is different. So typical kids, they transition really, really quickly right um but they have all of the ingredients necessary to facilitate pictorial development and it may be that some of those ingredients language and you know the ability to infer representational intent they're not always there in in asd so it may be that they have to rely on 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 highly transparent symbols for a bit longer but there's no reason to to think that they couldn't eventually get there you know as, as as language develops or as the training progresses how they you build on on a, on a concept that they understand. There's no reason why you couldn't shift uh, different levels of iconicity. And uh, certainly, one of our studies indicates that color, using a color image, is probably more important than necessarily uh, whether it's a photograph or a line drawing. So, in one of our studies, um, where we looked at the you know children's ability to extend words that they've mapped onto pictures, onto, onto objects, as we do all the time in, in how we learn from pictures. Um, we found that there was real similarity in their understanding of the color pictures, of color line drawings and color photos was much higher, twice as good as black and white line drawings and grayscale photos, which were much worse, but very similar to each other. That's really interesting and something to think about when, you know, we're looking at the icons and, you know, in AAC devices, there's lots of different uh, symbol sets. So, and you brought up an interesting point. So, because we do have some research, right, in in iconicity over the years, and so one of the ones that just came to mind as you brought this up 
is the the Fitzgerald key, right? The the the, the color coding component, which has always been a challenge for me because I'm I'm on the extreme end of colorblind. So I, I have to ask families often to, to take care of that for me. Can we define what Fitzgerald Key is for our listeners who don't know? Uh, sure. So the, so the Fitzgerald Key was a piece of research, I believe, in the 70s, uh, if I'm not right. We'll, we'll have this in the show notes, and if, and if I'm wrong, I'll apologize 10 or 12 times. But uh, it, 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 the idea being that, um, that certain colors could represent certain forms of speech, right, or, uh, or excuse me, um, forms of words. So, so verbs should be colored in a certain way, prepositions in a certain way, nouns mm-hmm. in a certain way, pronouns in a, in a, di- in a different way. Uh, there's a chicken or the egg thing there. Are, are we doing that because mm-hmm. we want to reinforce those colors um, to aid acquisition, or is there a reason why we chose those colors? That's an interesting question that, to be honest, I haven't necessarily got an answer for, but I suspect it might, it might matter. Um, pairing, so we, we know that children with ASD are very, very visual, right? And they have hypersensitivity across all different modalities, including vision. And there is research that shows that they are hypersensitive to color. It is very, very uh, attention grabbing. So by presenting a concept, whether it's a word alongside a color, it could potentially serve as a tag and and help them organize their their conceptual knowledge for sure. Um, I wouldn't see that necessarily as a as a, as a bad thing, um, given that we know that children with ASD can have differences in terms of their categorization, particularly lexical categorization, um, and whether and the degree to which they pay attention to shape versus color is often, um, or, well, it's, it's, the research indicates that it's unusual. Yeah, and I think that, you know, a lot of the AAC systems, uh, most of them, um, are, you're able to do that color coding and do, you know, either a Fitzgerald key or a modified Fitzgerald key. Um, so I think, as far as I'm concerned, like, why not? We don't know, you know, we don't have the definitive research to tell us one way, but intuitively it makes sense um, as, you know, an additional layer of, you know, aiding in that comprehension of categories and understanding. And it's not, you know, it's not always as important in the beginning, um, you know, stages of language development uh, for kids with autism, but, you know, definitely down the line. Um, I do a lot of stuff with color coding with my systems. And then I also have a lot of visual supports that I use, you know, in order to eventually work on WH questions and, you know, who is the same color as the pronouns. Um, so it's just kind of making those connections, uh, for kids who are very visual, I think it's just, it's just a really good practice. I think that, that's, that's the kind of thing I was getting at really, um, in terms of helping and just another way in which they can organize. Uh, knowledge about the world. If you're a child with autism and your understanding and perception of the world is is somewhat chaotic, then incur- you know adding these additional regularities can only be a positive thing in terms of bringing order to their to their thoughts and understanding of how things work. Yeah, well, yeah, I think the only you know you asked why not to do it, and the, the situations I can think of really would be cortical, cortical vision, visual impairment, right? So CVI, where you know high contrast is is critical, um, and then. I do often wonder, and this goes back to the the, the GIF piece for verbs, um, you know, I, I'm always conscious of attention theft. And we think about this even with fonts with dyslexia, right? You know, that there are, there, are, there can be confounding variables in the way that we present information that we may not, may not occur to us. Uh, and to be honest, I think that dynamic visual movement, I mean, that's a strength and limitation, particularly with, with this new um, explosion of digital technology uh, in, in AAC. Uh, again, that's something that all the research indicates is a real strength. They love the, the movement. They love the dynamic uh, integration. And, and that is far more motivational in the intervention studies 
um, than often your more traditional types of AAC. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about where we could go with that, right? And and this idea of encapsulating, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a static image anymore. And so I've like tried to do a little bit of this in my own practice. Um, and I definitely know it's more motivating. You know, mm. we take a video of a kid jumping and then we like pull that image and put it on their device and they love it. I, I do often wonder, you know, is this more distracting or is this actually solidifying? Um, it's definitely fun. So there's that. And there, there are some eye gaze heat map studies uh, that show dramatically different means of consumption of those of those video models from neurotypical kids relative to uh, you know children with autism i see i see calum nodding here so maybe you have <laughs> oh yeah yeah the, those kind of uh, differences and patterns um of attention are super common and particularly regarding social stimuli um and i suppose using video adds another level to the iconicity spectrum the continuum i was referring to at the very start right if you see something moving and that thing is you performing the very action i'm trying to you know represent then 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 that's perfect really and could really enhance children's understanding if you then take an image and 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 it's clear um but yeah certainly in terms of the use of, of, of digital technologies to promote communication the jury is somewhat out currently uh, in in the literature. Um, the the concern, the com- most common finding is that kids find it super engaging and super motivational, and parents love it too. But in terms of actual generalized communicative skills in real world contexts, I mean, it doesn't see the the evidence indicates that it's not detrimental. It's no worse. But it's no better. Which reminds me of like the visual scene display devices that are incredibly salient at home in the kitchen when you want to point to what's in the counter. But, you know, again, when you go to Costco, you don't have a picture for that. Yeah, there's a really, um, really interesting study that, that kind of touches on that. Sue Fletcher Watson in the UK um, designed an app um, that essentially the, the kids had it for two months and it was meant to teach social, like social uh, communication skills. So they had a picture of a person in the middle of the screen and um uh very and, and the, the avatar would look in different corners of the screen uh, at different things and the child had to follow their gaze had to follow points very social community views and the kids were aced at it by the end of the study they got really really good and could get complete all the levels but when they their social and linguistic skills are actually tested in outside using standardized tests there was no tangible improvements so it's it's again this this issue that we mentioned before about generalizing across context really challenges transitioning, I suppose. I think, I think there's a broader joke to be made there about standardized testing in general. <laughs> Very true. Um, and also just kind of going off of that, I think that's where I'm really interested in virtual reality and how that could potentially uh, help with that, that. We know that's the missing piece, right? Where kids aren't generalizing these skills. Um, it's the hardest thing, especially for kids with autism. I think the closer we are to real world context, uh, the better off we are. Um, but still, it's it's still only limited. So, you know, at, at some level, it's still we go back to the, you know, contextualized versus decontextualized. And um, I think it's a balance, right? And I, I don't think it's one way or the other. I think that we kind of need to take every child's individual differences and then figure out what makes what makes sense for them. And also balancing that with continuing to teach them um, and expand beyond if they're not understanding icons, um, you know, kind of expanding beyond that. If you were asked, like, okay, design a system, design an iconicity system for a new AAC device, like, where would you begin? 
a really interesting question. Um, I think I've, I've been looking for certain features, of course, in terms of the, um, you know, the, the qualities of the app. Of course. I'd want it to be customizable. I'd want the option to be able to take photos if needed and, in, in, and input them into the, into, into the kind of gallery of pictures that a child could use. I'd want to make sure that it didn't require any fine, real fine motor controls. I'd want to make sure that it could be easily manipulated using big buttons or, and big kind of finger and palm swipes. I wouldn't want it to be fiddly. Um, and really, before I, I suppose ideally before I released it, I, I would want to do, I want some empirical support, you know, there's so, as you mentioned, there are so many apps out there, right? That are, that are available for parents and practitioners to download and use. Do we know how many of them are actually supported by, by research? I can think of one off the top of my head. And for those of you that are developers listening, there's more than that. I know I'm being a little facetious, but I can think of one for sure. Exactly, right? But you can rest assured that there are ten, probably tens of thousands of apps out there that are designed or, or sold or pitched with the intention of facilitating communicative development and language acquisition and children's uh, interpersonal communication. And what they can base that claim on is, well, not a whole lot, really. And um, there is a website, um, Autism Speaks, the charity uh, that funds a lot of uh, ASD research in the States. On their website, there is a database of apps, and you can search by ones that have got support. Um, the problem is, I suppose, quite a few of the ones that do are quite costly, um, which is the, the downside if you're a parent, potentially. The other thing I, I just thought of is if um, one of the objectives of the app was to promote vocabulary development or lexical uh, development, you, it would need to be provide the optimal conditions for children to learn, and therefore it needs to be informed by the research how we know the effective ways that even minimally verbal children can figure out what words mean. It would need to be based on those kinds of strategies. What, if anything, would you like to share that we didn't ask about? Well, I'm very grateful, of course, to, to be invited to be on the, on the podcast. As, as I alluded to before, um, my funded research at the moment, um, I'm exploring uh, pathways uh, for word learning, um, why it is that some children have, have difficulties in identifying, retaining, and generalizing meaning, um, both in terms of um, learning in, in uh, fast mapping, which is, which is um, learning names in the moment that they're heard, or, and cross-situational learning, which is mapping uh, worst context over time. I'm doing a, a big project at the moment exploring how these mechanisms are atypical in ASD. So uh, I look forward to hopefully sharing that with you soon. We would love to have you back on the show. Well, um, again, my name is Lucas Stuber, along with Rachel Madel, uh, joined by Kellen Hartley uh, for Talking With Tech. Um, please do check our, uh, our show notes, which you can find on iTunes um, for anything that we, we talked about today. Fitzgerald Key, these other things, we'll, we'll, we'll have links in there as well as, of course, to uh, Dr. Hartley's research. Uh, we appreciate you listening. Um, any feedback at all that you have, please uh, direct to tech at speechscience.org or our Facebook page, uh, which is also called Talking With Tech. And um, if you have questions um, for Callum, we'll be happy to pass them along. All right. Well, thanks so much uh, to Caleb for, for joining us. Um, I thought that was a really informative interview about a topic that we need to be talking uh, more about. So I'm really glad that he joined us. If you guys haven't already, please join our Facebook group. Just search Talking With Tech. We have tons of conversations in there after the episodes, and we would love to hear from you. So please join our group.
And if you go to your podcasting app and you find us in that podcasting app, you'll see that there's a place where you can hit subscribe. That subscribe button is how you don't miss any future episodes. And there's a place where you can actually rate us as well. And that would be awesome if you gave some readings or feedback or some write a quick review. That really helps us out. So we really appreciate it. Well, once again, for Talking With Tech, this has been Lucas Stuber, Rachel Madel, and Chris Begay. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye.